Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called Criminalisation of Victims of Human Trafficking, an overview of domestic and international legal frameworks post-UK Modern Slavery Act 2015. Good morning, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 24-hour conference on organized crime and to this session, Criminalization of Victims of Human Trafficking, an overview of domestic and international legal frameworks post the UK Modern Slavery Act 2015. I'm Lucia Bird, Director of the Observatory of Illicit Economies in West Africa at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, the co-hosts of this conference, and a think tank that researches organized crime trends around the world and pilots programming responses and I will be moderating the discussion today. First, a couple of housekeeping rules. Please do stay on mute throughout the session and we will have a Q&A after all the speakers have finished presenting and we'll be taking questions through the chat function. So please do pose um, questions as the speakers are presenting and I will pose the questions once all the speakers have finished. Feel free to direct your query to a particular speaker or to the panel at large. Human trafficking and non-slavery are forms of transnational organized crime that clearly have hugely harmful impacts, and the number of persons exploited in contexts constituting trafficking is on the rise. The 2015 Modern Slavery Act introduced by the UK was the pioneering piece of legislation at the time, particularly regarding responsibilities placed on businesses to report on supply chain trafficking risks. And it has inspired a number of other countries, including Australia, to adopt similar frameworks. But Obligations on businesses have been widely critiqued as lacking teeth. Trafficking um, prosecutions remain stubbornly low, among the most challenging to achieve, in part due to the vulnerability of victims. So, to discuss these points and more, I am delighted to be joined today by our speakers, Phil Brewer and Philippa Southwell, who will share their in-depth expertise on the implications of the current British and international legislation on modern slavery and human trafficking. Phil Brewer is the former head of the Modern Slavery and Kidnap Unit at the Metropolitan Police in London, and he is now a special advisor on human trafficking at the Human Trafficking Foundation. Philippa Southwell is an award-winning and internationally recognized lawyer in the field of modern slavery law and managing partner at law firm Southwell and Partners. Philippa is also managing director of the Human Trafficking and Modern Slavery Expert Directory, and she is a published author and co-author of Human Trafficking and Modern Slavery Law, to which Phil also contributed, as well as, as, well as the co-author of Does the New Slavery Defence Offer Victims Any Greater Protection? So, Philippa, over to you for an introduction. Thank you. So today we're going to give an overview of um, what our legal framework looks like within the UK uh, and Europe. And um, I'm going to be covering what the current issues are, what the current failures are um, in the UK and what we need to do to address and identify victims of human trafficking, particularly within the criminal justice context. Um, Phil will be covering the investigation side of um, trafficking cases, um, and I will hand over to Phil to, to start with the investigation. Thank you, Philippa. So 
I thought it would be really useful just to talk through some of the um, the complexities around uh, modern slavery, human trafficking investigations. And, um, and we'll look at the different approaches. Uh, within that, I'll also look at some of the supporting legislation and some of the changes, certainly from a UK perspective, that we've that we've seen and managed as a result of, of us leaving the EU and becoming a third country in terms of our membership with organisations such as Europol and Eurojust. So just to start um, the, the conversation, um, I, I think it's, it's worth considering what modern slavery and human trafficking is in terms of a, uh, a general crime type. Uh, and the reason I think that is uh, is inherently important is because the approach that you take initially in terms of this crime can have significant impact in terms of how an investigation um, runs, um, the, the, the form it takes uh, and and the opportunities in terms of uh, of of identifying the offenders um, and safeguarding victims. So to start that, the, uh, the the main question is, is so what is human trafficking and modern slavery and, and how is it treated by law enforcement? And, and I, I guess um, uh, to coin a phrase, um, law enforcement is consistently inconsistent in terms of the approach that it takes. From a UK perspective, um, some of the some of the challenges that we face is that the UK is made up of, uh, of 45 separate police forces. Each of those are theoretically independently governed by a police and crime commissioner. Uh, and so and each sets its own um, its own focus in terms of priorities and uh, and what it targets uh, in terms of uh, of crime types. So it's not that surprising that when you look at the approach taken to combat modern slavery, you can effectively see, um, your, the danger is that you could end up seeing 43 or 45 different approaches to targeting the same crime type. And, and within that, you know, if for, from my perspective, in terms of what, um, of, of how I consider this crime type, it is a serious and organised crime, and there's no doubt about that. You know, if you look at uh, uh, when you look at the figures that are quoted in terms of profits made, and you're looking at 150 billion dollars worldwide in terms of criminal profit, it, it puts it amongst the, the other traditional serious and organised crime types, such as uh, drug supply um, and and, uh, and and economic crime, uh, as well as sort of things such as gun supply. But the benefit to modern slavery and human trafficking is that um, it's something that it's a it's a commodity. The person, the people is a commodity that you can use over and over again. You sell your drugs once you sell your firearm once and, uh, and the chances are that that transaction is done. And that's the end of it, where with a person, they will continue to make you money. So in terms of profit, um, it's um, it, it's. It, it's a uh, it's a crime type that generates significant funds and can keep on doing so with minimal outlay for the exploiter. However, the approach that law enforcement take may not always fit the, 
the same traditional expectations of serious and organised crime. Uh, and, and, and then it falls into that safeguarding type investigation, which means that it, it may be more reactive. So in terms of serious and organised crime, covert policing te- uh, tactics, uh, targeting the offender, where actually what may happen is that it's, um, it's actually seen more as a uh, safeguarding crime. So we wait for the crime to happen. Um, it's then uh, uh, a victim, a number of victims related to, to uh, the same offenders that is investigated. And, and it can result in quite a narrow investigation. And if you take that context of serious and organised crime, then you end up in the position where um, that actually we, we, uh, we end up in the position where, where we don't look further than the crime that's in front of us. So we miss links. We look at how, how wide the, uh, that organised crime group um, uh, are reaching in terms of offending. Uh, and, and it makes it more difficult for prosecutions where you are wholly reliant on the victim to provide the evidence if, if actually you're dealing with it as a standalone crime. So in some ways, um, although um, policing talk about a victim focused approach in terms of the victim comes first, um, in some ways that may not always be the best route in terms of investigation. And that offender targeted type investigation uh, that runs along uh, similar lines to, to those from sort of more covert methods could actually be um, far more um, opportunist in terms of getting the evidence that you need for convictions as well. And, and I guess just to throw into the mix um, in, in relation to, to, to this, um, it's, it may actually be, you know, one, one of the challenges is that we are very statistically driven. Uh, and, and in, Lucy, in Lucia's opening about prosecutions, um, you know, we, we still see, we see a low number of prosecutions that's not just from a UK perspective, that is, that is worldwide. So for the number of estimated victims of, of human trafficking and modern slavery across the world, the prosecutions still remain inherently low. And, and that is because of the complexities, the control and coercion that is applied to those crimes um, quite often means that, um, that the, the victim is muted or scared to, to, to seek help or even not even recognise themselves as as a victim uh, in the first place. So these are some of the very generic challenges that that are faced and and can impact in terms of of prosecutions. Um, But as I say, it might be actually that that, um, a prosecution is not the um, the best outcome for a victim, albeit that from a statistical point of view, it's seen as a a success from, from law enforcement. And this is a transnational crime. Not all offences. Um, from a UK perspective, um, um, over half of, um, of victims that are referred into the National Referral Mechanism, which is the UK's um, support system for potential victims of modern slavery and human trafficking, um, they are UK citizens, quite often exploited domestically within the UK. However, we know there are there are established networks, there are source countries that we see on a regular basis um, that are moving their people from from their country of origin 
to the UK, um, where they are then exploited. And, and going back to, to what I said when I opened in, in relation to, um, in, to, in terms of the focus of the investigation, we could deal with with an incident that is reported to, to law enforcement and apologise. I still say we, even though I've, I've retired over two years ago from, from policing. It's a, unfortunately a force of habit. Um, but we, it, we focus on, we, if we focus just on that incident, um, we, we, we potentially safeguard an individual. Uh, we take out those potential exploiters. But what we don't do is we have no significant impact on the wider organised crime group. Um, to put it into, into figures in terms of from a, a monetary position, um, a, a victim of modern slavery, someone who's moved from one country to, um, into the UK, we are relatively, you know, we're, we're very much talking about the cost of a budget airline ticket, um, a coach ticket, uh, that method of movement. Uh, in terms of outlay for the exploiters. So it's a small amount. If you lose your victim, if you lose those those on the ground exploiters, I would suggest that they can all easily be replaced in terms of, uh, of, of personnel when you're looking at an established and well-run organised crime group. So how have we traditionally targeted uh, uh, those organised crime groups that we've um, that we've that we've um, that we've we've focused on and, and actually sort of how 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 can we how does that what does that look now since the UK left left the EU? So for for many years um, there there has been a, a an excellent and I say that um, from a for, from a practitioner point of view. Um, the, the joint investigation teams, um, a coordinated response that saw that sees uh, EU um, law enforcement agencies uh, working with other EU law enforcement agencies as well as third countries in terms of looking at co coordinated responses to international or European crime. And, and this works really well through Europol and Eurojust uh, great coordination from both from an intelligence stage uh, and, and then developing um, into potential prosecution. Um, and, and certainly uh, in my time uh, within policing, and um, I was lucky enough to represent the UK at the, um, at the expert group within Europol as well for trafficking human beings, we saw a significant number of cases pass through um, successful investigations. Uh, and that was great in terms of that mechanism, in terms of that coordination through Europol and then establishing a joint investigation team with Eurojust. But it, it also requires the right personalities. It requires that trust between law enforcement agencies. And I'm sure I will not surprise anyone by saying that sometimes that doesn't exist um, you know, different law enforcement agencies from different countries can can provoke suspicion, um, and also from a UK perspective, where um, where prosecutions are very much uh, uh, or investigations are very much led by by UK policing. Um, obviously, with our um, uh, our colleagues within uh, Europe, most of those are led by a prosecutor as well. So. But it worked well. It worked well. It still works well. Um, but from a UK perspective, some of the challenges that we've uh, that we've now faced 
is the fact that as a third country, um, it is unlikely that we will ever lead on a joint investigation team. Now that, and I don't mean that from um, from from a point of view of that I'm I'm really disappointed that the UK can't lead in terms of the technical element of the investigation sometimes it can be a challenge when when the majority of the offending has taken place within the UK and and sort of one of the the, the elements that um, you know we, we we knew what would happen once we left the EU um, and, and and the fact that we would lose that ability to lead non investigation but also in the background things such as extradition have also provided a challenge so if we are looking to extradite someone from another country into the UK to, 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 to prosecute, that can now also sort of meet some challenges in terms of EU countries refusing to extradite their, their citizens to a third country. So there are a number of challenges that have been faced. Um, speaking to the sort of the, the UK's International um, um, Crime Coordination Centre, uh, and uh, you know, asking them questions because it isn't just about these mechanisms and, and how the UK fits into those that has changed. Um, some of our ability to access, access certain databases has also changed. So, one of the big databases from an EU perspective is the Schengen Two database, which holds specific intelligence information in relation to missing persons, um, people of interest, um, objects of interest. And the fact is that the UK no longer has direct access to that. So the ICCC has said, you know, we, we are still working with European colleagues. We just have to do it in a different way. Uh, and that doing things differently can sometimes build in a delay in terms of investigation, which again can have an impact on that outcome. When you strip everything apart in terms of look at the key components of a human trafficking investigation, you will, I would say pretty much on, on most types uh, of offence, exploitation offence under the modern slavery umbrella, uh, you, you, you find a business model uh, and and that is key in terms of generating um, uh, that cash. If you imagine human trafficking and a modern slavery crime as very much being a a business, um, the the fact is is that profits are maximised because in most businesses the most expensive part or the biggest outlay can be employees, um, people, and and when you remove much of that financial burden for your business model, you end up with a highly profitable business. Um, but you do need those key components in terms of making sure that that, that business works. And therefore, it would, make, um, it would make great sense in terms of, um, of having a parallel financial investigation that runs alongside uh, a, a police investigation into a, into a specific incident or organised crime group. Uh, and the reason I say that is because, uh, and we'll we'll come on to uh, onto this in a bit more detail in terms of the challenges in terms of that victim identification, victim support as well in terms of a prosecution, uh, and the fact that although it is um, absolutely possible to run victimless prosecutions in terms of modern slavery, and we've had some success with those from a UK perspective, they are extremely time consuming where you are very much reliant 
on 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 providing that that evidence that does not rely on a witness or, or victim account. And, and therefore, sort of running a financial investigation does offer you those opportunities because, as I said, the key bit is in terms of money and actually following the money back to those that ultimately um, benefit the most from it is one way of providing that evidence or part of that evidence to um, to to, um, to to help prosecute those responsible for for organising those those crimes. And intelligence sharing obviously still forms part of that. I've mentioned about Schengen and some of the challenges around that. Most of the UK requests now are are routed through other routes such as Interpol in terms of, of those checks being done. Um, but we also rely on bilateral um, country agreements. And this is where it starts to get um, quite messy, confusing from a law enforcement perspective. Going back to the joint investigation teams, well laid out processes with significant support for law enforcement in terms of making sure that we can establish a joint investigation relatively quickly. Um, and, and where we've now gone in terms of bilateral agreements as well, although they are agreed at government level uh, and they offer some real opportunities in terms of investigation, um, what sometimes doesn't happen is that is not communicated with the practitioners. And so you will discover that many law enforcement officers are probably unaware of the fact that bilateral country agreements exist or how they can access um, the support through those mechanisms. And therefore, it, it becomes quite a challenge when you are looking um, at, at an international or transnational crime to the point where, um, uh, and this is probably a sad state of where we are we get to a point where we um, where, where sometimes it feels it's easier not to pursue that international element rather than trying to make a flawed mechanism work and and some of the challenges is that if we don't get that right if we don't make sure if we if we end up in a position where that victim if they are there supporting the prosecution feels that actually they're a little bit lost they don't know what's happening with the investigation they're concerned what might happen next it is not unusual for someone that was in an exploitative situation finds themselves supported as part of their investigation but become so concerned that they gravitate back to their exploiters and that is uh, unfortunately a, a sad reality of, of of dealing with this crime type and, and I'll just finish on this before I just um, talk a little bit about the blurred lines of, of victims and offenders. And that is um, in terms of those control and coercion mechanisms that are employed so well against um, victims by their exploiters to make sure that they don't seek help from the law, from, 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 uh, from law enforcement or from, from, from the government in, in the country that they find themselves in. Um, you know, there are also elements in terms of what goes on in the wider world. And I think very much now at the moment, if you look at the migrant crisis, where there is little trust in terms of claiming asylum in the UK, um, and, and certainly the, the, the UK government's narrative is quite anti-migrant at the moment, and it, it's well documented within, within the press, you actually provide an additional means of control of co coercion for your exploiters because 
if if people are making those perilous journeys across the channel, particularly at this time of year, probably once they arrive, the last thing they will want to do is to seek uh, asylum um, through the proper channels, because the danger is, is that it will be refused and they will be returned back to their country where they are at risk of harm um, or, or, or removed from, from the UK. So you end up creating a scenario where someone will much rather stay under the radar. Um, they need to work. They will be working in the black market. I can guarantee that none of those people will find themselves in a position where they're working for someone that pays them um, the minimum wage or above. So that exploitation continues, and that is through sort of uh, the mechanisms that have been created as part of law and order within that country. So as a way of a handover to Philippa, um, some of the challenges uh, for law enforcement as well is in terms of who is the victim and who is the offender, because it's not always clear cut. And, and certainly from, uh, in a, from a traditional law enforcement point of view, you are effectively provided people in three categories. And they are you have your victim, you have your suspect uh, and you have your witnesses. And what has never explained, and it certainly wasn't explained to me 32 years ago, is that there you will meet people that are also uh, have portray or, or have traits of a victim, but have also ended up offending as well. And, and from a law enforcement point of view, that, that really clouds and causes some issue in terms of trying to understand the best approach to take. And, and you can no longer look, look at a crime in a two-dimensional way. You need that understanding of someone's circumstance. Uh, and that is, and I don't just mean in terms of how they've ended up being part of this crime, but also circumstances in terms of what the potential enablers are that has made them vulnerable to exploitation in the first place. And they could be things such as financial. It could be the community that they are from is at a higher risk of exploitation, both from outside and with inside their own communities. Uh, it, could, it, it could be that they, they, they are part of, it, it's just life uh, and, and they are some of the challenges. Uh, and also it may just be that actually you have someone that has been presented with minimal um, life choices uh, and I'm sure the majority of people on this uh, on on this uh, forum today um, have made different life choices at different points of their lives, uh, and and none of those have ended up in exploitation. Uh, and so, you know, in some cases, some people may only be presented with with one or two life choices, and and they could be you either enter into a scenario that you wholly expect to be exploited or you don't and your family become destitute and actually have no, no way of providing either for them or for yourself. And so they are forced into that situation. And with that, there are, they, there are situations, and this is just the human nature in that if you find yourself in an exploitative situation and then one of your exploiters gives you the opportunity to do something that that makes you less exploited, and that could be exploiting another person, then, then I would suggest that you would probably take that just as self-preservation. And, and so you start seeing those blurring of lines between uh, uh, someone that is a, a, a traditionally seen victim into someone that actually has been offending as well. And with that comes things such as criminal convictions, uh, et cetera, 
which again starts to cause some challenges when it comes to um, when it comes to prosecutions and court because those convictions unless they are made completely clear that they are linked to the exploitation in the first place can cast doubt in terms of uh, reputation uh, of the person that's providing that evidence and, and you know it isn't people don't always recognize themselves as victims um, they they we, we see many people that actually would would actually shut down if someone said to them i think you're a victim of exploitation because there is shame there is misunderstanding there is that element of grooming control and coercion that has gone on that has toughened them to the fact that actually they've convinced themselves that they're not they just don't recognize it or it's not so different from the life that they've experienced throughout their lifetime so on that cheery note i will um i will stop i will hand back over to philippa um, for her presentation thank you phil for those insights into practical law enforcement approaches to responding to trafficking and strengths of the current approaches and the ongoing challenges including on the victimless prosecutions and i thought it was really interesting and perhaps we can explore that a little bit further the fact that often investigations have very direct impacts on on victims of trafficking and, and a, i suppose a small circle but perhaps less effects on the wider transnational organized crime networks involved um, please do keep posting questions in the Q&A in the chat. Um, thank you very much to those that already have. And we will address those after Philippa, who will um, now, now speak and talk us a little bit through the, the legal framework, including around non-prosecution and um, identification of victims of trafficking through the national referral mechanism. Philippa, over to you. Thank you. Uh, so just picking up from where Phil left off, where... We are now in this situation where we acknowledge that we don't have a classic perpetrator victim. And I think in general, particularly in the UK, the criminal justice system is becoming more victim centred. So we understand now rape myth. We understand um, domestic violence. We understand coercive controlling behaviour. And I think there has been um, a lot of trafficking myth particularly within the criminal justice context, um, where we, you are dealing with invisible control mechanisms. And I still think we have a long way to go, particularly in the UK, within the criminal courts in understanding those control mechanisms and whether they are, whether they are cultural, religious, um, or they are, you know, uh, perpetrated by violence or dependency, whether it's substance abuse, um, and so I sit in a quite an interesting position because I am a criminal defence lawyer, but I defend victims who have been involved in criminality, um, who have either been prosecuted, convicted or are being prosecuted um, for offences that are intrinsically linked to their exploitation. And as Phil mentioned, uh, we, have, we see individuals graduating um, up the, 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 the chain, essentially, of, of a criminal network um, and will control others coming through um, while still under the control of their trafficker. And it throws up quite interesting issues as to how do we deal with that vulnerable person who is a defendant and a victim at the same time. And I still think the UK, even though we have this very new and leading piece of legislation, we have the Modern Slavery Act, which came into force in 2015. 
we still have teething problems as to how that's being implemented and how that actually really works in practice on the ground. Uh, and to flag up some of the issues that we are still seeing is that we are failing to identify uh, particularly in a forced criminality context. And really the focus of, of Phil and I's talk today is the criminality element. Now there are many different ways that an individual can be exploited, um, but when somebody is exploited by way of forced criminality, so they are compelled to commit criminal offences that are linked to their exploitation, um, we, the, the most important stage that we can identify that person as a potential victim is actually that point where they have contact with law enforcement, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's a police officer that's arresting somebody in a cannabis grow or whether it's border force officers. Um, that very first contact with law enforcement is very, very important because what that does is it gives us the, an opportunity to divert that person away from the criminal justice system um, and how we treat them from that very early stage, it really is very important because if we then arrest them, question them, interrogate them as a suspect, to then get them to cooperate as a victim of modern slavery at that stage or a later stage, is very, very difficult. Um, and I've represented hundreds of victims of trafficking that have been prosecuted, who then, when things then go right for them, that they are eventually identified, do not want to engage with law enforcement because of that experience that they've had, that they're not believed, um, that they've been you know, handcuffed in prison, served very lengthy custodial sentences, um, and lots of things have gone wrong for them. Particularly for foreign national victims, the criminal aspect, again, as it has a domino effect because victims that are prosecuted or convicted for certain offences, if they receive a sentence of over 12 months or are convicted of certain types of offences, will trigger an automatic deportation. So many victims will be removed from the UK. I've had clients that have been removed uh, deported, re-trafficked because they're still in debt bondage back to the UK to re-offend. So there's a cycle of exploitation. So the, the identification of victims at that early stage is so, so important. And, and we have an obligation, not just as, as lawyers and not just as defence lawyers, but CPS lawyers, the judiciary has an obligation, first line, frontline responders, law enforcement, all really have a role to play um, with the identification um, of, of these indicators. And I will go through some indicators um, later on uh, this evening in this talk, uh, but by no means is there a complete list of indicators. And I think it's very, very interesting to map the type of criminality that we see. And I see within my practice um, pockets of England and Wales where we can see that clearly different criminal networks are operating and exploiting individuals in different ways. And, and you, can, you can map that. And it's, and it's very different depending on where you are, just as other countries and other towns have um, different types of exploitation. So for example, we have a problem in the UK with forced cannabis production. We are uh, having young, vulnerable Vietnamese nationals traffic to the UK 
put in pan- cannabis grows to 10 plants. Now, in other countries, that's, that they have issues with different types of drugs like methamphetamines, um, where individuals are made to produce drugs in, in that way. So we, we do have very um, different types of exploitation in relation to forced criminality. And that is continually evolving. And, and we need to do more, not just in the UK, but globally, to keep up to date with how the modus operandi of traffickers are changing and adapting and diversifying. Um, because I have represented individuals from non-recordable offences, such as begging, all the way up to attempted murder, whose offences were intrinsically linked to their trafficking and exploitation. And they don't appear on first blush um, that that they are um, victims of trafficking. And it's only when you scratch beneath the surface, you ask the right questions, that you realise that actually there is far more to this. This is not your normal defendant, your normal um, uh, criminal. This is an exploited individual. So in the UK, um, the the legal framework that we work with is that there are two key regional instruments, the Council of Europe Trafficking Convention and the Directive. In 2015, we had the Modern Slavery Act that came into force. And with that, um, we had a statutory defence of trafficking. Before 2015, we would um, rely on the non-prosecution, non-punishment provisions. And the UK as an ex-member state or ex-member state um, has to have systems in place to not prosecute victims of human trafficking who have been compelled to commit offences. And so we would routinely um, write the prosecution to ask them to review whether it was in the public interest to prosecute this individual. And the CPS have had for a number of years guidance on prosecuting or not prosecuting victims of human trafficking. And it is relatively robust guidance at the moment. It's been honed over the years as our legislation, as our guidance, as our policy has evolved. Um, We have, as part of um, our obligations under the Council of Trafficking Convention, a system in place to formally identify victims of human trafficking. And that is what we call the National Referral Mechanism. Now, um, how that fits within the criminal justice system, again, um, is slightly fragmented and we still have not quite um, sorted out the issue of victim identification um, in within that criminal justice context. So first responders have to refer a potential victim into the NRM for formal victim identification. It's a two stage process. Um, The first is a reasonable grounds decision, then a conclusive grounds decision. Now, there has been a very unhelpful case called Bracani in the last uh, few months where it was held that trafficking determinations made by our competent authority are not admissible in, in, in criminal cases. Now, that's caused a lot of problems for particularly first instance cases where we have victims coming through who are also defendants who are seeking to rely upon the Section 45 Modern Slavery Act defence. And so we are seeing, I think, more miscarriages of justice where victims are being convicted but are 
victims of human trafficking and whose defences have failed because they could not advance um, uh, that piece of evidence that they were a victim of trafficking as found by our competent authority. And I have a, a test case going through at the moment in the Court of Appeal, which may address some of these issues. Some of the problems that we're also having um, within the criminal justice context is, again, how do we deal with an individual who is a victim and is also a, um, a defendant? And we have a number of safeguards in place that we can um, develop where we have special measures. Um, we may apply to have proceedings moved to a different court, a different area of the UK, because what will happen is an individual will be picked up in a forced criminality setting, will be prosecuted within that um, area of the UK. And we know that that is where their traffickers operate. So there are practical things that we will do to try and help this vulnerable defendant um, who is being prosecuted. Um, protective bail conditions, for example, if we do manage to get bail for victims slash defendants, um, we will ask that, for example, particularly in relation to children, that they don't have access to mobile phones because what we are seeing is many, many victims going back into uh, their traffickers um, organisation. They're picked back up, particularly Vietnamese nationals. We have a very, very high missing rate as soon as they are released from custody. Um, and this is because of all of the, the complexities behind the control, uh, the compulsion and the invisible control mechanisms um, that are used to bind victims to their traffickers. So some trafficking indicators that we would see within a forced criminality setting is showing um, signs that their movement's restricted, giving false accounts, giving false um, details, either saying that they're older than they are or saying that they are younger than they are, uh, being fearful to speak to the authorities, giving a coached or, or rehearsed account. The reason why inconsistencies um, in itself are an indicator causes real problems, again, within the criminal justice context, because as soon as you know, we have established that somebody has given a false account when they've been arrested or an interview, for example, that is very much used against them throughout um, the, the criminal justice process, that they're not credible, that they've, that they've lied uh, previously. We also see many victims um, who have scarring, who look malnourished, who are malnourished, who have um, quite serious uh, mental health issues as a result of their exploitation. So, many indicators, some are very obvious, some are not. Um, we have now the Section 45 Modern Slavery Defence. Now, one of the caveats to that is that we have attached to the Section 45 Modern Slavery Defence a list of Schedule 4 excluded offences to which you cannot raise a slavery defence. Now, that in itself I would argue is not compatible with our obligations um, under the Council of Europe Trafficking Convention. Um, and so we, we have this very interesting list of about 100 offences, um, some very serious that you would expect to see murder on there, for example. But we also have um, offences such as criminal damage, which I am still 
baffled as to why and how that it made it onto that list. We also see, which is problematic, um, trafficking offences and many sexual offences. And the reason why this is this is a problem is that historically we're, we're seeing many, many victims, particularly victims who are trafficked with sexual exploitation, they become extremely damaged and will be put into a, a slightly different position, still exploitative, say in a brothel setting, where they will control other young, youngsters coming through in that setting. They will be engaging in sexual activity. They will be filming. Um, they may be involved in the trafficking of other youngsters, but are still in, in, under the control of their exploiter. So we have this very interesting dichotomy where we have very vulnerable individuals who have ha suffered many, many years of exploitation. And it goes back to what Phil was saying is that we we have this pool of individuals that um, have committed offences that either they've been compelled to commit as a direct consequence of their exploitation or to liberate themselves from their exploitation. Um, and, and again, we're seeing many, many cases coming through the appellant courts where these individuals have just not been, it has not been picked up that they were victims of trafficking themselves or that the offences were linked to their exploitation. And I want to talk a little bit about the um, typologies used to control victims um, of, of human trafficking, particularly in a, in a criminal justice context. So you have the obvious physical and sexual violence. And I just want to pause there on, on the sexual violence control mechanism, because some of the things that we're seeing coming through, particularly with um, males from um, Asia, is that traffickers will use sexual violence as a control mechanism. So it may not be that they are being trafficked for the purpose of sexual exploitation. It might be that they're being trafficked for the purpose of forced criminality. But the traffickers, particularly on transit, on transit through Europe are uh, subjecting them to quite serious sexual assaults to demean and control um, that individual. Um, we often see deception used as, as, again, a control mechanism. Debts, many, many victims are involved in debt bondage. And this is where we have this uh, again, this misreporting, particularly in mainstream media, about smuggling and trafficking. And it's very, very important that we understand the difference between smuggling and trafficking and, and the legal terminology. Now, many, many victims believe that they are being smuggled and they will put uh, pay a certain amount to a smuggler slash trafficker to bring them to their destination country, say the UK. Now, I will, the classic cost of a individual being smuggled from Vietnam is around £30,000. Now, um, uh, many victims will not be able to afford that amount. They, are, they take out loans, their families take out loans, or they will pay a deposit as such. And the agreement will be when they get to their destination country, they will work to pay off that debt. Now, this is where it becomes conflated and, and the definitions become, um, I think, uh, distorted. 
And so many, many victims who have engaged with smugglers actually become victims of human trafficking because they are in debt bonded. They will continue to to work to pay off that debt. Some victims will come to the UK or their destination country thinking they are working, going to be working in a certain job, whether it's construction or, or, you know, in a factory or labouring. But they are then put in a sexual exploitation setting, for example. We also see culture and faith used as a control mechanism. So many of my Nigerian uh, victims of human trafficking have undertaken a juju ritual where they are, um, they genuinely are, are in fear that if they break that, that ritual, that oath that they have taken, that they will die, their families will die. Now, all of the, those mechanisms that I have mentioned are, are, are invisible. And again, it's very interesting to see how we deal with these within a criminal justice context. Now, we routinely now rely more and more on expert evidence, whether it's country expert evidence, trafficking experts, psychological reports, um, medical reports, depending on what the type of case is. But a lot of the time, um, the, 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 the control is invisible. And how we deal with that within a criminal justice context where we are when we usually historically deal with tangible evidence black and white evidence is interesting and I still think we have a long way to go in understanding um, the, the the psychology and the trauma behind what these individuals have suffered um, and go again it leads back to you know what are our roles as professionals and particularly as my practice is a, quite a large appellant practice. So I can see when I get a case, everything that's gone wrong from the previous defence lawyers, the police, law enforcement, the judiciary. And we, you know, we're routinely seeing judges completely missing trafficking. And they are saying in, in their um, sentencing remarks, words akin to slavery, uh, but but are not picking up that this individual you know has been exploited. So um, you know it is about educating all practitioners in your respective field as to the nuances that that um, that, you know, that that are attached to these types of cases. And by no means is this you know is it a complete list. And I just want to run through the types of offences that I have seen within um, England and Wales um, where victims are being exploited in this in this certain uh, way. So sexual offences, um, thefts, what we're seeing is targeted thefts and burglaries. So individuals will be made to steal metals from building sites will be sent to certain stores to um, steal certain items. We're also seeing victims involved in begging. And this is uh, usually where individuals will use children to beg and move their children from one town to another um, in forced begging, essentially. Fraud offences, so we are seeing uh, benefit fraud in the UK where traffickers will um, give an identity to a victim, whether it be through a fraudulent passport or identity documents, 
and they may claim benefits with that identity. They may work under that identity. And I've had um, many victims who have worked in legitimate jobs, as in jobs that they have obtained with a fake identity, um, where all of that salary will go straight into the account um, of the trafficker and they will not have the funds uh, to, to survive, essentially given a minimal amount of money. We have a huge problem in the UK with uh, cannabis production, as I mentioned earlier, and also with possession with intent to supply. And interestingly, um, the highest nationality of victims identified in the UK are British nationals. And so we have um, a huge problem with particularly minors and young, young adults. So from sort of the 18 to 25 range are still a very vulnerable group type. Um, and you may have seen in the media the reporting on county lines exploitation. Now, really, it's crim child criminal exploitation. And we're seeing uh, victims being made to run drugs between different areas of England and Wales. And so we have a very big problem with that at the moment. Um, and uh, many, many victims are coming now through the appellant court because it's been missed at the first instance cases. Um, also, as part of those types of offences, victims may also be involved in um, handling uh, offensive weapons, so uh, firearms, baited articles. Money laundering offences, many victims, again, particularly those involved in sexual exploitation, may also be prosecuted for money laundering offences. Immigration offences, uh, again, that's, that's relatively obvious. Victims will come in to the UK with fraudulent passports or will overstay um, in, in the United Kingdom. Driving offences, and this is a, a relatively new type of um, exploitation that I'm seeing in the UK. So Eastern European males are being trafficked for forced labour exploitation. But as a result of that, they are having vehicles registered in their names by their traffickers and road traffic offences are being committed that they're either unaware of or that they are committing in the course of driving all the labourers to building sites, for example. So that's um, a sort of nutshell of the types of offences that we're seeing. And you can see the, the types of offences are all the way from non-recordable offences to very, very serious and dietable only offences. And again, it just shows how sort of fluid um, this is and how important it is that we um, are, are on top of um, the indicators and the way that organised criminal networks or individuals are exploiting vulnerable people. Patricia, we have um, questions now. Yes, yeah. let's move to questions. Thank you very much, Philippa, for a really fascinating gallop through a whole range of issues. I think we would need days to unpick what you've both um, uh, led us through. Um, so thank you. Thank you all for posting your questions. I'll, I'll, I'll pick a, a few of them and perhaps cluster them for, for our speakers. Um, Phil, perhaps um, two for you. Firstly, um, perhaps you could comment a bit more on how to address um, trafficking offences in 
post or perhaps more accurately, unfortunately, a during COVID world, and in particular, how to complement victim focused approaches with approaches that are preventative to avoid the harms occurring in the first place. And as a second question, also probably to Phil, of course, Philippa, feel free to jump in. Um, the, the mandates of Europol and Eurojust, to what extent do they overlap? And how does cooperation with third states work, in particular with Ac Africa and ECOVAS? Um, Phil, perhaps we start with you. Oh, right. Thank you. There's uh, some great questions there. Um, so uh, in terms of the COVID impact, I'll, I'll just talk generally about it and, and then I'll, 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 I'll hopefully answer the question as well. Um, so we've... Uh, this really goes this really demonstrates how uh, how adept our exploiters are when it comes to facing challenges because they were very quick to adapt in terms of changing their business model in terms of how people were exploited and um, and what I mean by that is um, some of the vulnerable premises that we expect to see export or we have seen exploitation in within the UK things such as nail bars, car washes, all the sort of businesses that are actually closed down uh, during lockdown. And we slowly but surely saw those workers even either being either sort of being kept in premises. So control and coercion still going on, uh, but but sort of living. Um, and the exploiters idea behind that was that actually once things opened up again, um, the chances were labour was going to be at a premium, which means they would be able to increase their profits. So that's one thing that we saw. We also saw those people working in nail bars, restaurants, etc., moving, being moved to other um, business types, such as sort of things such as shellfish picking, which was still going on during lockdown because they were out in the open air. So we saw sort of changes in processes. Some of the difficulties were... Um, it, it, is that it, it changed? It also changed the model because people were supposed to be inside, uh, and uh, and Phil sort of touched particularly around children. So we have something in the UK that we call county lines, uh, and to put it into really basic terms, this is where we have children, often from inner city uh, gang, in inner city estates uh, that um, are linked to sort of gangs who were then being paid money or, or not uh, and moved drugs on behalf of their gangs to, to provincial towns and other cities to maximise profits for those gangs. Because a child being out during lockdown would have really raised suspicion, um, actually what the exploiters did was start targeting children within the destination areas. So it, it was a change of process. And some of the issues with that is it meant that it still went on, theoretically went hidden because the children were local. And if they were out and about, it wouldn't have looked massively out of place. So that, that some of the challenges in terms of, of, um, of, of COVID have been for law enforcement to get their heads around the tweaks or the changes in some of those exploitative business models. So that's one. Um, now, just I'll, I'll touch very briefly in terms of, uh, of the next question uh, and just around prevention. So this is something that um, that goes comp on the whole completely um, missed. So we, we, we don't some of the challenge are in terms of arrests and prosecutions. If we go to that basic 
sort of crude method, it, we, we're able to measure how many prosecutions and convictions that we have. So we have a statistic in terms of how well or not so well that law enforcement is seen doing addressing an issue. Prevention is a whole different issue. How do you know if you have stopped someone from becoming a victim of exploitation or not? It can be really difficult to measure. Now, for me, I think there's there's a number of things we can do, and, and it's sort of it, it, this is about looking at um, what are the main enablers to exploitation. So it could be in terms of sort of uh, it, it could be sort of debt. Um, it could be sort of community and looking at how do we work within those areas to remove those enablers to exploitation. For me, that is that that's prevention. And we don't focus enough on that. I, I know recently um, the um, International Justice Mission did a presentation about how well they've worked to support law enforcement uh, in terms of international prosecutions, which is fantastic. But when I asked the question, it would appear there's very little work that goes on in the same coordinated way that, that addresses prevention or, or, or introduces prevention opportunities to reduce the risks in the first place. And I think that's something that we will always continue to, to work with. The last bit, I'll give this in really basic terms. In terms of the difference between Europol and Eurojust, Europol is very much about sort of, if, if I say in, in layperson's terms, they manage the intelligence. They will look at supporting the analysis of how big a problem is. Eurojust's role is to coordinate the criminal justice element to that. So they will draft up the agreements between the um, between member states and third countries. They will do the liaison between the criminal justice partners. So Europol very much more policing. Eurojust is more about the, the criminal justice element to that. Uh, and anyone, theoretically, um, Europol or Eurojust, anyone can be part of a joint investigation if there is an international instrument within that country that supports um, that coordinated approach. So that's the key bit. It's in some ways the legislation could be there. But if the willingness isn't work, that isn't there in terms of that that joint approach, that's sort of where it it falls apart. And I'll stop talking there. Thank you, Phil. That was very clear as to what was actually a pretty complicated, mandate-driven question. So, um, uh, so a couple of questions for you, Philippa. Firstly, what would be the process for victims who have been wrongly prosecuted, convicted, and are serving their sentence to take their case before the European Court of Human Rights? Do they need to exhaust the appeal and review processes through the Court of Appeal as well as the Crime Cases Review Commissions? And the second question is, you, you mentioned um, the, the shift um, towards being able to rely on Section 45 defences under the Modern Slavery Act, as compared to prior to its enactment, relying on non-prosecution provisions. Has the Section 45 defence um, made it easier to, to rely upon? Is it becoming more used? Or, or particularly after McCartney, is it still um, as complex as before? Over to you. So um, in relation to the first question, um, the, an individual will need to exhaust their appeal, uh, appeal avenues within the United Kingdom. And so they would have need to have been refused permission at the 
court of appeal stage um, and at the Supreme Court stage. Um, we would need them to get certified point of law. Um, the CCRC, again, um, is uh, the Criminal Cases Review Commission, which enables uh, individuals to actually have a sort of second go. So I've noticed that somebody's put a um, a question about the case of VCL. I represented him in his all the way through his proceedings. He's had been to the CCRC Court of Appeal um, and now the European Court of Human Rights. But we actually um, went back from a Court of Appeal refusal back to the CCRC um, because there was fresh evidence, essentially. Um, and it's not just, I mean, looking at um, applications for permission to appeal to the Court of Appeal, we aren't just also dealing with um, convictions in the Crown Court, and there is a real large pocket of individuals that have been convicted in the Magistrates Court to appeal to the Crown Court. Um, and um, those are particularly in relation to the county lines type cases that Phil was mentioning. Um, there is a huge, huge body of those, which obviously they are not reported cases. Um, they are appeals in the Crown Court. Um, the second question about this Section 45 defence, I have to say that um, the Monsavery Act is a leading piece of legislation, as I say, you mentioned in your, in, in, in your opening to, to this presentation. And it is, um, we have had many countries, Australia, Canada, um, uh, following quite similar legal frameworks. However, um, I have to say that it, getting a case dropped now post Section 45 is a lot harder than when we didn't have a statutory defence. And, and, and post Bracani, it's even harder because the prosecution um, are essentially saying, right, well, yeah, let's go to trial. Previously, we would do the following. We would make, say, say we had a charge, um, individuals facing trial. We would first make written representations to the prosecution, ask them to review whether it was in the public interest to prosecute in line with the CPS guidance and, and, and all the relevant uh, legal frameworks. And um, they would need to apply um, and review the, the, the prosecution. Failing that, we would then have an abusive process argument, which again has fallen away uh, with the case of DS. Um, with Bracani now, CPS again is saying, well, all very well, you've served us with the reps. It's in, it's in the public interest that we will prosecute you. The CG, the trafficking determination isn't admissible. We're going to trial. And so it's a lot, lot harder to get uh, a, a case dropped. I mean, for me as a defence practitioner, going to trial is the very last, I mean, that, that's the worst case scenario for a victim of trafficking. Um, and we will, you know, our, we would do our utmost to try and get the case dropped. And remember that particularly the types of offences that we're dealing with, an individual, take, it takes about a year for them to be processed through the criminal justice system to go to trial. And in now post-COVID, there's a huge backlog, not just, you know, it's within all courts around the world. And so, you know, we, we've got individuals that have been awaiting trial or will await trial for one to two years for non-custody cases. 
Um, and it is very, very difficult to get the CPS to discontinue a case. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, it does, but it is a lot more difficult now post Modern Slavery Act, Statutory Defence and post Bracani. Thank you. There's been some published concerns in the UK around the misuse of the Section 45 defence. Um, but what shines through more, more clearly, of course, and that's partly shaped by your practice, is how difficult it is in the first place. Do you feel the concerns about the misuse are perhaps um, ex exaggerated, um, given how difficult it is to, to apply in practice? I think that the way that the Section 45 defence is formulated, so you have to have done the act, so you have to admit the act is rare, so you have to have committed the offence, that the offence was uh, linked to your exploitation, that the reasonable person with the same characteristic would have done the same, and that for an adult they have to show that they were compelled to commit that offence. A child does not need to show compulsion. Now, um, you know, if you are, if an individual is giving evidence, I mean, it, it's quite interesting because the county lines type exploitation is actually quite different to, um, say, a foreign national who has been trafficked to the UK who doesn't understand how our emergency services work, for example, not being able to call uh, call the police or not understanding, um, you know, or having fear that there is corruption in the law enforcement here as they would have in their um, home countries and so I think that, that that it's formulated in a way that it does filter out I think cases where an individual may not be a legitimate victim of trafficking it's a decision you know the jury it will be a a matter that will go before the jury um, and this is where th there's been a whole issue with Bracani and um, the admissibility of that trafficking determination so the jury will not have that piece of paper that has determined um, that individual to be a victim of trafficking and that is by our vested body our single competent authority it was essentially it's the home office so um, it, it's interesting I mean it doesn't mean and I think that particularly criminal defense practitioners have got quite panicked about Bracani and yes I mean you know I don't agree with it but it doesn't mean that you can't be advancing a robust defence. You should be obtaining independent evidence, whether it be an independent trafficking report, an independent um, country report, an independent psychological or psychiatric report, looking at the coercion uh, or any learning disabilities or difficulties that the individual might have. So, I mean, I would never just go to trial running a Section 45 defence pre-Bacani just with a trafficking determination itself, particularly individuals that have been exploited for a number of years. And if we look at the county lines type exploitation where individuals are known to local authority and known to probation, in that material is a wealth of information, a wealth of indicators. Many, many professionals may have raised concerns before that this young person is being exploited, going missing for long periods, you know, missing from school, missing from home. Um, clearly something is going on. And so there is a wealth of material that can be obtained um, and advanced at trial in support of a Section 45 defence. Um, but as, yeah, I hope that answers that question. 
That does, thank you, that's very clear. Um, Phil, over to you briefly to comment on um, follow the money approaches. Are they increasingly adopted? And is this an opportunity for wider dismantlement of organized crime rings? We are coming to the end. So if you could give me a neat two to three minute answer, that would be fantastic. I will, I, I will. Um, so, so for me, following the money, that financial investigation is, is important. It, it's, it, it's the bit that exposes those people that are controlling that 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 organised um, sort of crime. So they are the ones making maximum profit. That there are, but and this is where the challenge is: is that not every investigation will have a parallel financial investigation, and that is because of the level of the experience of the officers involved. It could be the the, the fact that there are no financial investigators to support so there's a number of challenges that that impacts or, or it, it's because it is a an added part to an investigation it can sometimes feel that, that it's becoming even more complicated than if you just deal with what you've got in front of you so going back to what i said before safeguarding type approach unlikely to have a financial investigation attached to it where actually if it's more serious and organized crime there is a higher likelihood that it will be adopted as a financial investigation on the other side, where some of the challenges are from a, a transnational point of view, is, is those incompatibility in terms of legislation, uh, in terms of seizures, uh, asset recovery, etc., which, which can in some ways cause uh, additional complexities. It is possible, uh, and certainly through, again, through the joint investigation team process, there are, it specifically sets out that it can also be used for uh, facilitating financial investigations. Um, but it's in, in, in theory, it is the Rolls-Royce model. Uh, practicalities, there are a number of inhibitors which can uh, that can complicate things. Thank you. So definitely promising in practice, often quite difficult to, to adopt. Thank you both for a really rich discussion from two slightly different elements of the criminal justice system. I think we've gained a really fantastic insight into what is really remains an evolving landscape, uh, a form of transnational organized crime that there, there still remain gaps in our understanding. The legislation is still in the process of being applied and in fact reformed at the moment, um, various elements of it. So really fascinating to see how, how it works in practice, um, both in the courts and in law enforcement investigations. So thank you also to our audience for some really fascinating questions which have driven a really interesting discussion. Thank you again to our speakers um, and thank you for a good session. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime, 
and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.